I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome to another episode of For Your Ears Only, Optimism Vaccine's ongoing review of the entire James Bond franchise. A remarkable, towering achievement that involves us watching upwards of 25 films over the course of about three years. Staggering effort being put in by all involved. My name is Jack Eason. I am joined, of course, by my uh, fellow Bondophile, Jake Trapila. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing fine, Jack, and thank you for reminding us how long this has taken everyone to <laughs> well, do. Well, we, we, we could have done it faster. We're just like, oh, pace it. Lay it out. They're taking their time True. making a new movie. Well, to be... Yeah, exactly. To be fair, they, there was some production holds on that, so uh, we, uh, we kind of dawdled a bit in the middle. But uh, we're back. We got a new film. No Time to Die is out April 8th. So we're finishing strong. And we're not alone here. We have a very extra special guest this episode. We've got Sean Glynis. How you doing, Sean? Oh, good. Thanks. So flattering. Um, It's nice to be on one of the canon episodes. uh, (laughs) Or I should say one of the episodes of one of the canon uh, films in the series. Oh, that's true. Yes, we are. We're entering a new age that's here. Fair, yeah, yeah. For those who might remember, Sean joined us on the uh, unofficial Casino Royale film from 1967, which I think we can all agree is uh, not only the worst film viewed for this podcast, but possibly one of the worst <laughs> films ever made. <laughs> I, I, uh, I it's amazing. It, it does have. Uh, Orson Welles in it, so that kind of keeps it, it does. from a it's, lot it's, of other. That's true. Somehow, somehow it's that's so true. bad. It's almost like it's it's so disjointed. It's like four of the worst films ever made joined together. <laughs> it's a remarkable film. Yeah. Don't watch it, everyone. It's, Just listen to our podcast, and we'll we'll assure you you don't have to. Yeah. You're not missing anything. Don't bother. Yeah, yeah. We so cover so we're entering. All right. So, uh, but yeah, new era. Jack, new yes, era. We are entering the Takes 1990s, uh, age old time, nearly. God, 30 years ago. What is happening? Um, so, 1990s, and of course, with that came a brand new James Bond as we talk about GoldenEye and the introduction of Pierce Brosnan, episode 0019. So, uh, Sean, I suppose before we get cracking in here, um, James Bond, GoldenEye, you, you, was there a reason you chose this episode to jump in on with us? Uh, yeah, there was. Um, GoldenEye was... Uh sort of my introduction to James Bond. I mean, I was familiar with, um, you know, the, the series, but uh, that was sort of the first one that I remember being sort of interested in watching. You know, I had seen, like, uh, the Sean Connery films just, like, peripherally, like, here or there at, at um, you know, relatives' houses. But um, Goldeneye was the first one I sat down and watched. Um, and... It was kind of important to me to defining what my conception of uh, James Bond uh, became. Uh, I thought Pierce Brosnan was. I, I don't. I don't know how much of this is like looking first chicken to the egg, um, but I'd like to think of it this way: that Pierce Brosnan is what James Bond should look like. 
to me. Like um, just stereotypically thinking of that mo- like that archetype. Um, You're certainly not support. alone in that. Okay. And, yeah, and I guess they cast them for yeah. cast them for a reason, probably. But um, uh, and also uh, the BMW M3 is that what it's called? I think it's a Z3. Z3. If I, if I'm that correct. was th- that yeah. was um, uh, my favorite car for a while as a kid, uh, which is introduced in this film. Wow. Um, so yeah, uh, this is you know obviously uh, as listeners probably know Pierce Brosnan's introduction to the franchise um, is so. Who has obviously Connery has the longest tenure, right? I think Roger Moore, didn't he? Roger. Yeah, Roger. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> a little it's a little convoluted because uh, technically Connery quit twice, so there's a gap in his films. But he did seven, six official, one non-official. Um, Moore did seven straight through over a period of uh, I think it was uh, thirteen years. And um, Daniel Craig is about to have his fifth film released, but he's been. Uh, in that role for uh oh gosh this is gonna be 14 wow. years yeah i guess so 2006 yeah, to 2020 was, so depending on how you Brosnan? count it Brazen did four so he did a little he did a he did a tight set i guess you could say and his tenure lasted from 95 to 2002 um but uh yeah this is uh kind of like sean this was the first bond film i ever saw and my Actually, my first Bond anything that I ever saw or played oh, yeah. in this instance was the uh, GoldenEye oh, yeah. 64 game, which I th- I think was uh, ubiquitous for, for many people our age. That's key 90s cultural consoles. reference um, for sure. It's Yeah, so it's kind of fun to play the game and then when you see the film, you're just you're just so familiar with all the level designs and it's, it's kind of neat to see everything. So I have like a weird attachment to this film where I'm just kind of remembering hours and really hours of playing the game. Does it familiar? Like I was kind of struggling watching it this time to, to like patch together what the film looks like and what the game looks like. The film's certainly more detailed because the game levels are very much mm-hmm. pared down versions of the film. Like the, uh, I think the, the bottling room where the, uh, the, the mm-hmm. first confrontation happens is actually pretty barren and, but like they have the and the the sky antenna that the climax takes place on. It's like in the game, it's just set against this like giant blue void. There's no jungles inside. Um, but yeah, I mean it's 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 very very simple and basic. But like for 1997 uh, graphic terms, it's I think I think pretty faithful in a low key yeah, sort of way. It, <laughs> N64 yeah. had its limitations. Certainly, everyone was a. Uh little round they had a little james bond pierce yeah. brosnan face painted on a little round bubble for his head uh the good old I, I days guess, i guess um what that sort of like leads me to think like as far as like me not being able to patch those two together as well is um that the n64 game this that in pop culture seems to most definitely um have uh, obscured the film in terms of uh, importance or at least like uh, permutation. Um, the video game seems much more important mm-hmm. to people uh, than than the film. Is that it's would, it's would a tricky be... one to parse. Um, and I mean, I, speaking from my own experience, um, like in Ireland, this was a big one because it was like Irish James Bond. Oh sure. So there was there was that added push, you know, which is still kind of goofy because he's still British. But I meant like real film. people. But yeah, yeah, fair enough, absolutely. 
important distinction to, to draw there um yeah no i, I don't know because i mean this was a i mean we'll we'll talk box office later on but this this was a big success this was seen yeah. as a real return to form for the film so the film really you know it really did well it was like i think like the fourth or fifth highest grossing film of the year it was kind of seen it dragged uh, yeah. you know bond into the into the 1990s um so yeah i mean i, I guess it's tricky because i think video gaming was really coming into its own in the late mm-hmm. 90s the playstation and the games gamecube or the n64 other were really starting to you know kind of proliferate across living rooms and just sort of kind of elevated it was you know there was just 3d and all of this was really Mm -hmm. kind of you know it it just became i think video games became much more exciting they seemed the the possibilities were starting to appear almost like expand exponentially in what you could do compared to you know a deck you know generation of like uh, 2d scrolling platformers and stuff so I guess uh, Goldeneye was kind of was was Goldeneye. I think certainly the video game is more important in the history of video games than the film is in the history of film. And I think that might be you know sure, they're, they're, sure. it's not quite it's apples and oranges I guess yeah. in terms of their media mm-hmm. consumption. And um, but you know I I don't know it, it certainly the video game is just very very fondly remembered. I think even people who really don't care about James Bond at all, a lot of them still love the video game. So this just came out in 1995, and I was trying to think of it in terms of the action landscape. So that's a year after True Lies, Um, and um, which I mean, I like True Lies quite a bit better. And a couple years after Cliffhanger, I don't know why I thought of the. These are films that I saw as a child, um, when I probably shouldn't have, but. yeah, I don't know. Uh, it fits in those as far as like the the different set pieces um, uh, being what people wanted out of action films. I guess uh, I'm thinking like distinctly of um, the opening, which I didn't remember because I, I haven't seen this in a very long time. I hadn't um, when he like jumps to follow the plane and like you know, are we led to believe that he is very good at like whatever the term is, like, lone skydiving. Oh, yeah, I mean, to... Bond does, okay. does it all. Like, yeah, I mean, it's it's, I mean, it's kind of the recurring thing. I suppose there are certain recurring action sequences in the Bond franchise, and skydiving is one of them. This is, yeah, yeah, oh, this, yeah. It's, you know, it's it's kind of like there, there are certain ones. The aerial stunts are a big part of the Bond franchise, and this one, I think, really kind of you know hits the ground running yeah i mean it's it's an insane stunt <laughs> i mean it opens with and what he was did a, it all Why? oh yeah yeah no right. pierce brosnan of course did all of these things that's uh, right he insisted but, on it yeah no it was it was i mean that opening shot with the the base jump was actually a world record at the time i think it was a 720 foot base jump from a he was the largest or the the highest base jump from a fixed structure in the in history at that point um so, you know, they, they kind of open big, and I mean, it's just an incredible vista to set your opening shot against and to have the tiny figure up there. Um, so, yeah, like, I think it, it kind of is... I'm, I'm thinking about this, like, as you talk about contextualizing two 90s action film, and, you know, I know True Lies you mentioned, and it's actually interesting because I believe this film had to be revised somewhat because it started to step on the toes of True Lies a little bit, that there were hmm. some changes because... Uh, In what ways? Uh, I'm not sure of specifics on that because actually I haven't seen True Lies in many, many years at this point. But some of the, the details with regard to action sequence, I think there were some 
overlap. Overlap, yeah. Um, I don't think it was anything major structural, but just a few things since Cameron's film was really fresh in everyone's memory. Um, but like, I mean, the '90s was sort of a, a bad era, I think, for American action films. A lot of them kind of slid into camp so by the middle of the. Uh, yeah, I mean, True Lies and Field. But like, I, I guess it was like you had the early days. You had like the the early '90s. You got feel you had like that tail end of the '80s tailwind with like Under Siege and uh, I had like Die Hard Two, kind of like a certain old school kind of yeah. aesthetic. Um, and then you kind of had you you kind of had a slide into honestly kind of camp and you low budget Michael Bay stuff burgeoning. Yeah, bad yeah, boys just Bay. right around the corner. Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah. It's it's true. I guess like the blockbusters went a lot more kind of choppy, kind of big, kind of rapid editing. I think like music video influences kind of came mm-hmm. in a lot more prominently, which I think. Uh, certainly changed the rhythm and tempo of a lot of the films and then i think like i said there was a slide into camp for any kind of like low budget for some of them so like under siege was followed by under right. siege 2 which was right. like a real cheapo film and um, actually martin campbell speed who directed this speed 2 martin campbell who directed this went on to do i think a terminal velocity or vertical limit one of the two skydiving movies vertical of the limit, 90s. Yeah. vertical limit which well, uh I, that's is also climbing, ridiculous yeah. Oh, is it, oh, this I'll be part. interested. Yeah, Drop Zone um, is the other. Drop Zone. Sorry, I'm getting. Right. I'm confusing them. There were there was just a lot of there was a lot of vertigo in the '90s. Actually, lest we forget, just... uh, Point Break too is also kind of a bridge between the '80s oh, and the yeah. '90s. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, there were there were a few high points, but I think um, this this fitted in very much as kind of a, a the, the big budget spectacle sort of thing. They had the money to to have people ride along in airplanes and do stuff. Um, whereas I think a lot of action cinema that 80s boom kind of tailed off and a lot of the other stuff went down into direct-to-video your Van Damme Seagal kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, tier I, I, I'm interested um, that makes me think of like I guess um, it, as the throughout the next couple to see if that changes because I was thinking while watching Goldeneye that the style is very much like um, it's it's a it's a well uh, like disregarding pace and um different beats and things like that like just looking at like mise-en-scene i guess in editing um it's a well put together piece of like you know it seems controlled martin campbell seems to like know what he's doing and knows how to frame a shot and uh so it felt to me like something from like the like a studio picture from the 70s like late 70s or or 80s um and it doesn't seem to have hit that uh or, or doesn't seem to have been influenced as much by that like music video and like sharp editing uh, Michael Bay type of style yet. No, if my if my recollections serve, uh, that that will that will come later on. And Martin, this uh, is mm-hmm. yeah, Martin Campbell. I'm just going to say I think he's one of the unsung heroes of the Bond franchise because um, this is uh, years 1995. It's been six years since the world has had a Bond film, which uh, to date is still the longest gap between Bond movies since okay. the series started and martin campbell he's actually resurrected the series twice he did this one and then he would go on to do casino royale in 2006 oh. so he and yeah what you were saying sean just like the opening sequence where they're infiltrating the lab it just is very like the there's, there's the cameras like placed inside of the grate that they climb into and it's shot from above and there's all these 
great little mm-hmm. cuts and angles that he's using. It's it's a fantastic sequence. And, and doesn't Casino Royale have a really good opening sequence as well? As yeah. a parkour chase, isn't there's, it? Yeah, yeah. There's like the opening film noir pre-title sequence, and then yeah, there's the right. excellent parkour chase, which might be the, the action highlight of the entire series. But yeah, so he's a, he's a very skilled director um, when it just comes to staging and shooting action. And curiously, I believe not believe, his strong suit. Pacing, per, perhaps that's, not. That's um, I think I think he was I think he was brought on probably for his action credentials. Uh, I believe he's also at this point the first uh, non-British director of the Bond franchise. I'm not 100 percent mm. sure about that, but he's uh, Campbell's a New Zealander. Um, oh, actually, really? I think prior to that, I think they I think all of them were British prior to this. I'm just trying to recall back as I, I run back through them. Uh, Peter Glenn had been directing them for so long; it's hard to John hard Glenn, to remember. Yeah. or John Glenn, Peter, rather. Who did uh, Casino Royale, the sixties one? That was um, like five different people. Yeah, that was that's, like, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Houston like, is one. Uh, I think Orson Welles directed his stu- his own stuff, but yeah, Woody that, Allen reportedly I, had a lot yeah. of input. You know, <laughs> great, he wrote good some stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's one that one's all just the greats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Arrows of the sixties. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think at this, I think at this point, it's it's interesting because uh, I think it's always an interesting thing to yeah, it's it's <laughs> an interesting section or interesting thing to look at it with with the, as we change over bonds is to think about all the weird what ifs uh, and looking at this. Um, Pierce Brosnan was brought on. Timothy Dalton was actually going to reprise the role, but he would have to have signed a multi-picture deal. And by 1994, he wasn't willing to do that, so he he was he resigned the role. So uh, Pierce Brosnan eventually got the role, obviously. But prior to that, they had considered fresh off of Mrs. Doubtfire. Mrs. Doubtfire, indeed, That's right? You know, but uh, he was. Uh, other people who were considered include Mel Gibson, Hugh Grant, and Liam Neeson. Um, of which Neeson could have done it, right? Neeson could have certainly. It would have. It yeah. would have been a very physical, brawny uh, James Bond. Hugh Grant is borderline <laughs> incomprehensible to me as James Bond. He was uh, like a yuppie type. I mean, all all he did was look flustered. Like that was his comic yeah. persona, or like his his persona in, in drama and comedy at this point. And I'm not and like part his hair. Yes, yeah. I in mean, the but the '90s yeah. were unkind to Hugh Grant. I think Hugh Grant has actually acquitted himself much better. But he kind of went through a, a period in the '90s where he was just being jammed into the same film what over and Hugh over Grant again. Do nowadays? Oh, um, he's he's good. coming out in that Guy Ritchie movie, The Gentleman. Look, he's oh, he's got like a beard. He looks like he's hamming it up in that. Yeah, I mean, I would very much welcome like uh, Hugh Grant Assange, um, but I don't know Could what do. they would have to look different. You know, kind of like the McConaughey has looked different from the stuff he did before. Yeah, yeah. and and then Mel Gibson, I think, has uh, turned out to be a, a good miss, frankly, <laughs> considering subsequent. Well, actually, I mean, honestly, Liam Neeson's got his own demons based on yeah. whatever his his uh, what he said this his, year, which, yeah. which is really yeah. which is really yeah. funny because because uh, obviously Mel Gibson is a noted racist. Uh, Liam Neeson has some terrible filmmaker. noted racist impulses that he just casually relayed in oh, an interview yeah, yeah. earlier about, <laughs> yeah, uh, which I yeah. I wish I could have been in the room when he just went into that discussion. I about that. <laughs> um, and then, of course, uh, the theme tune for this film was nearly supplied by Ace of Base, noted white supremacist band. So, wow. yeah, they, they have some connections, yes. Their bassist, oh, I believe, was white supremacist. Um, although he's claimed he, he'd given it up by then. and there, But there's no, there's articles noting connections in their lyrics to white supremacist ideals. I don't know. Uh, I avoid the topic by just not listening like to Ace the, of Base. Uh, 
I like their uh, politics. No, I like <laughs> Tina Turner's uh, song here. I thought it was good. Yeah, it's good. And and I've forgotten this was written by Bono and the, Bono Edge, and the Edge. You too, which uh, oh. another surprising Irish connection. But I just want to note just before we, we move into the film again. Uh, also, uh, John Woo was offered to direct this. Damn. That would have been crazy. And John ah. Wu turned it down, but he said he was he was honored as we offered. And, and Rennie Harlan, uh, Finland's great uh, action director, and I think still presider over the greatest flop in cinema history, um, Cutthroat Island. I think adjusted for inflation. No one wants to do that for the uh, flops. But um, I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned uh, the John Wu thing because um, that was another thing that I was thinking about. Uh, as well was where this fit in with the Mission Impossible film, which is this predated Mission uh, De Palma's Mission Impossible by one year. By one year, yep. And um, uh, I I don't know exactly what to say. It, I, I, I was just trying to match up sort of their aesthetics and, and, and the pacing and set pieces and things like that. Um, and some of them look a bit similar, but uh, De Palma's film, um, I think it's really really good um but man that would have been interesting to see a john yeah, john, Wu, uh, john Woo would have been bond uh, i don't know if it could have worked i think it could have made a film that would be reclaimed kind of like mission impossible 2 was reclaimed by film fans as being just so outlandish Too few. that yeah that kind of you know people were like actually this is pretty awesome but you know was kind of critically decried on its release and um, golden i think uh, the, sure. bond, the bond series is i think we could agree fundamentally pretty conservative uh, they don't. They don't like to break the rules too much. They try and yeah. keep kind of a pretty solid, well, functional base. Not very an auteur-driven series. Right. They they like more uh, competent craftsmen is what they're after. Somebody who turns who, out yeah, say yes. Turns out what? Yeah. It it turns out that's kind of what Mission Impossible has molded itself into. But yeah. Uh, um, but um. W- on that note, and as far as like them not wanting John Woo uh, to do it or him not doing it or whatever, um, the thing I've always found fascinating about the Bond franchise is that you don't need to be introduced to it at any point. You don't need to catch up. It's it's Each release is a possible entry point for somebody, and I think that that's really cool. Yeah. It's um, a, it's very yeah, yeah it's it's very carefully laid out like that. There are numerous references throughout this film that you, I guess the Bond films work that way. There are references sure. back that the fans can recognize. Um, in this but, one, like the Martini stuff or or the the Heineken stuff in like Casino Royale, especially which gets a little like you know I guess meta or whatever, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every so often they like to throw in like a reminder about an older film or in this one um, there's the, at one point the, the plane that he's introducing that there's a reference to License to Kill. M tells him also not to get personal which of course is the License to Kill's plot line is James Bond getting personal. So yeah, there, uh, so there's like those little things but obviously they don't they don't require that knowledge. They don't really detract from the film or distract or no. conceal anything whatsoever. And yeah, I mean that that's very much a feature of the the series it's not like the marvel universe which now dictates that you have to watch 30 films in a tv series and, just and, to know who the yeah, hell everyone culminations is. and things like that yeah, yeah no we we have none of that um it's a serial essentially although i believe uh on a, once we catch up and i think the daniel craig era tries to develop more yeah, of a, a meta sure. narrative arc so right. but none of that none of that here really um so yeah, yeah. we we open we open this film with um 
Because it's this kind of toes the line, I think. I feel between because uh, License to Kill, the pre-credit sequence is actually unusual in that it just really just dives straight into the film, where the pre-credit sequence traditionally is more of a standalone vignette. This kind of uh, toes the line in that, be, or kind of walks the line between that and that. It is a standalone vignette, but it does deliver a little bit of it. Introduces who will turn 006, who will turn out to be your primary villain. But they could, they honestly could have done this in flashback if they needed to. But they kind of use it as an opportunity to bring him in, but also just do a boombastic uh, action set piece to introduce us into uh, the this new era of James Bond. Um, and I will say straight off the bat, this is uh, the kill count in this film uh, just wipes out everything else. Prior, every prior James Bond You film. had mentioned that before I rewatched it for this podcast, and my God, you were absolutely right. I think the pre-title <laughs> sequence alone has more deaths than the Dalton and Lazenby years combined, if I'm not oh, mistaken. Almost. Uh, I'm, I, like, I was trying to... I, I had to pause it routinely to try and count, uh, and my count doesn't agree with IMDb of a count. But in any case, uh, yeah, in the pre-credit sequence, he wipes out like uh, twice as many people as um, as uh, God George Lazenby did in his entire single outing. <laughs> um, he just machine guns down people, you know, just tons of them. So yeah, it's it's kind of a crazy start, um, and I, I guess it's kind of an interesting thing. We talked about *Licensed to Kill* is certainly, I think, the most viscerally violent James Bond. But the franchise was moving into this. I, by the 90s, we had, like, the PG-13 rating in the United States. It kind of become this strange kind of soft ore where as long as no one bled anywhere, you could kind of just have just right. massive blood or yeah. massive, like, gun battles. And James Bond leans very heavily into that. Um, I guess there were prior examples, like uh, A View to a Kill had sequence like that. But in, uh, crucially, in A View to a Kill, it wasn't James Bond just mowing people down with a machine gun. It was the bad guy. Oh, yeah. So... Uh, but anyway, uh, just an interesting uh, setup, and um, an interesting thing I noticed in the in this pre-credit sequence is that James Bond jokes about 006 buying him a pint, which again, ears, mm-hmm. uh, that's not something Roger Moore you wouldn't be buying him a pint, no siree, uh, he'd have some smarmy comment about cognac. <laughs> so uh, very, uh, we got a more a more accessible James Bond. I feel like at this point he doesn't smoke. Uh, he, he still womanizes incessantly, clearly, but uh, you know might be down for a pint of bitter. But he gets he gets called out for it this time. He does indeed. I recall uh, if anyone remembers the critic, the uh, the the Fox animated series uh, featuring oh. <laughs> uh, John Lovitz John as Lovitz, as, yeah. Yeah, as a as the film critic. It was a, yeah. I just loved that show as a kid. No any stupid movie jokes, but I remember there was specifically a joke about the the Pierce Brosnan era where. They did that, that James Bond had to produce a full list of all prior sexual partners to the woman. And this is, just, you know, which was the joke of the year. It was something that was discussed with this was, could James Bond fit into the 90s? There was this kind of, God, as we think about it, it was supposed to be like this PC movement. And honestly, looking back in the 90s, the amount of racism in like 90s movies and stuff, like we were still in the Stone Ages, it felt like. And I have a feeling yeah. 10, 15 years from now, we'll look at 2019, the Uber woke <laughs> yeah. 2019, and also be like, holy crap. Yeah, um, I think so. So it's it's sort of a strange, it's sort of a strange balance but, that... Uh, but what I'm saying... 
Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but uh, within the diegesis of the film, he gets called out and calls him like a misogynist at some point. Yes, yeah. he's a dinosaur, a misogynist and dinosaur. Yeah, yeah and, and Money Penny even threatens to report him for sexual harassment, which has never happened yet. No. Yeah, yeah. I, I've got to admit, this is one of the things I did really like about this film. Um, the banter between Bond and the women oh, sure. has never been better, I think, than in, these, in this film. Yeah. Um, that there's still certainly, uh, you know, the, these are not, prog- this is not a progressive film. Uh, feminists will not be reclaiming this film, I think, <laughs> um, at any point. But, but there's an acknowledgement. But there is. There, the women actually have a space and kind of a repartee with with Bond that really has rarely occurred. They crack jokes. There's even one point where Bond cracks a, a like terrible dad joke, which Bond has always done. And uh, the Bond girl kind of like stares at him, kind of like, oh, you you couldn't help yourself. You know, it's, it, there, there's just a couple of interesting right. little details in here. And I think it's God, it's kind of welcome, honestly. If we're, if we're going to do it, you know, let's at least uh, spruce things up a little bit. But I will say, when she does call him a, a misogynist dinosaur, um, that's where the, the cognac bit is, is there. And he she's, she's pouring him a drink and he says, oh, you're... Uh, predecessor had a bottle of cognac on the top shelf. She says, uh, I like, I prefer bourbon. And then she proceeds, you can barely see in the back, but um, she pulls out a bottle of Jack Daniels, uh, which is not bourbon. Um, and also, I find I find it hard to believe that in this, like, top-level agency, they would just have, like, this, uh, what, like, 17 dollar bottle of booze <laughs> probably probably fell off a crate somewhere you know yeah yeah i don't know at least she didn't mix it with coke <laughs> but yeah i, I, I know yeah yeah they're changing things around a little bit and um, of course i mean it's worth noting all of this comes in after our introduction to mr bond uh prior i guess the, we were introduced we, to him in the yeah. opening credits or the pre-credit sequence but then he's on uh, racing around racing a lady on a in a ferrari and seducing a woman by scaring her to death in a very weird mixed message sequence to, yeah. to be quite honest um that also involves the first major gadget of the uh Pierce Brosnan era, which is a champagne cooler in his car. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. He has a fax <laughs> machine in his car, too. Oh, that's right. He does yeah. do, yeah. Or like, well, he yeah, he can get photos printed out of the center console. <laughs> yeah. We, so what uh, a useful thing. So, yeah, backing up a bit. So, there's this great opening pre-title sequence. We see him actively working with a fellow 00 agent, which has not yet been done. I think it's really cool and kind of exciting to... They work well together. I think uh, Brosnan and Bean have a good chemistry here. Um, they're yeah. uh, held up by General Oromov, who's one of the villains of the film. He's played by uh, Gottfried John, is it? Uh, yeah, Gottfried Jan, probably, I guess, yeah, is a German. A face, a face that frequently worked uh, with uh, Rainier Werner F- Fassbender. Werner Fassbender, yeah. yeah. And if you've ever seen uh, Berlin Alexander Platz, um, it's, it's just... It's, it's, uh, a scarring face to revisit <laughs> yeah i plays- was wondering where i recognize him from and it turns out it's on the cover of that eight hours don't make a day criterion where his face is just right. <laughs> plastered front and center i'm like oh hey it's him uh, yeah i don't know uh, what kind of character he plays in there i'm sure jack does but yeah i mean he just plays like the uh just the dirtiest like ter- <laughs> most terrible 
person. A real, a real Fassbinder but... character, to be yeah. honest, uh, as there are many of those throughout his his career. So yes, our he's one of many villains. We we've got a large cast in this film. They really went all out. They treated he's us. A... There's so many yeah henchmen and sub henchmen and so on. He's pretty good, I think. Um, I think he's as far as you know. He always is outshone by the main villain, who we've said is ends up being 006. But there's always sometimes there's a there's of course there's the henchman, which is Famke Jensen playing Xenia on the top. But then there's also commonly a secondary villain who Bond has to contend with, and I think he he makes for a very good. Uh, he fills the role well. He's I think uh, he kind of I like his. His admiration of Bond trying to escape behind the uh, the uh, cart full of uh, metal canisters of gas. He has like the, that that little that little glint in his eye as Bond is uh, as when he eventually dives out onto the um, conveyor belt and shoots out the spring loaded traps to unleash the cans on everyone. And then also him like staring at Bond as he takes off on the cliff. Um, which he also is like the second base jumping in the film is where he dives off to get to the plane and then steer it back up to safety. I think it's I think it's a it's a really well done sequence. Um, you guys thoughts overall on it? It's I always I always enjoy watching a a burning vehicle or something getting catapulted off a cliff so someone can catch sure. a, a plane. And this is uh, they did pretty much uh, the same. Well, actually, no, I guess in License to Kill it was just a burning pickup truck and no one was survived to catch the plane. But a similar a similar uh, kind of shot sequence. Um, yeah, I mean it's a real barnstormer of an opening. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I'm and that, uh, Yeah. Once that plane takes off, uh, Tina Turner takes over, and we hear this. See, I think we mentioned briefly earlier that we uh, enjoy the theme song. Um, I gotta say, ever since I watched rewatched the film, I've had those those first few guitar plucks stuck in my head. 
Uh, yeah, it's certainly got a like a strong Shirley Bassey vibe. This is it's kind of I'm, like I say, I'm, I was surprised I'd forgotten that this was essentially U two authored, um, but really, yeah, it cuts back to like it's it's a real classical piece, I guess. And uh, it's worth noting actually on the music front, just to to go back right to the original gun barrel sequence. There's a rearrangement of the Bond theme there that's a bit. Uh, jazzed up and spruced up and apparently yeah. was disliked and never used again so oops well the whole theme is by eric Serra, who was a frequent collaborator with uh, luke basson he did um la femme nikita and leon the professional and the fifth element um so and it, the music really stands out and i i think uh, with one notable exception i think a lot of it is actually very memorable um, that might also just tie into my uh, memories of the video game because a lot of the same music sounds like it's recycled there. But yeah, the uh, just the opening gun barrel, like the stings of that. I don't know what what instrument that is. It's it's like catches you immediately. Um, the only music I don't like in this film is the scene after the pre-title sequence where he's driving with the uh, field examiner, and there's like this like very tacky synth that starts playing during yes. the car chase. Yeah, I noticed that. That was very weird and out of it's place. Awful. And it does sound like something that was just kind of shunted in there, like they they you know ran out or something. It was it's yeah peculiar. I don't think this is a particularly well liked Bond score overall, but no. um, I would agree. I, like I, I, as with a lot of film music, you really only notice it when it's not working, and certainly that sequence works for that. Um, the the opening titles we might mention is um uh, uh what's what's his name Morris Binder is uh is unfortunately he's, he's had dead, passed yeah. at this point he passed in the in the six year gap so we have mm. uh, a new uh, Daniel Kleinman took over yeah. and his first one is this is <laughs> it's strange I I complain about the politics of Bond films a lot they're you know I mean we acknowledge they're very conservative and Western oriented as inevitably they would have to be as as Western blockbusters. But I just think it's kind of funny that um, this is the first James Bond film of the post-Soviet era, and yet the whole film is basically trying to drag Russia back to the Soviet era. The whole thing is like pretty much like they never went anywhere. Um, and the opening sequence is a bunch of nude and bikini-clad women smashing hammers and sickles and Russian iconography, which apparently... To the surprise of, like, I would imagine, almost no one pissed off several uh, former Soviet countries, um, but so be it. It's 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 um, it's a Bond theme sequence, certainly, um, and certainly um, follows the template. There's nothing here that really stands out as completely radically re- redefining what we'd expect. It's very much still yeah. in the kind of you know in the same mold as what came prior. It's got a, and this goes true with the rest of the film, but since we're in a new era and, and CGI is much more prominent now than it's ever been before, uh, there's like this digital sheen that is on the picture. It looks like it's from the 90s, and this also extends to the, the glossiness of the pre-title sequence, as you described. It's, I, you know, you kind of miss the, I really miss the, the Maurice Binder shadow people dancing around in like just stark spotlights of single colors, so... There's a lot more uh, digital landscapes that we're working with here. Yeah, I believe the gun barrel sequence is actually, I, I saw it noted as the first instance yeah. of CGI in the Bond franchise. So, amazing yeah. they did not shoot it through the barrel of a gun. Sad. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, where, where are we at at this one? Okay, so we've had a briefing from M. M has called him a, a misogynist dinosaur. 
Bond yeah. has said, sure, because uh, uh, he still gets <laughs> sent out into the field. Uh, and where do we go from there? Are we into Monte Carlo at this point? The we, helicopter? Uh, well, before that, there was the uh, there's the entire casino sequence where he meets Xenia, which is really just sort of plays like a refurbished uh, version of the Dr. No casino sequence. Um, yes, you know, he, I do. He, I do want to make a, a yeah. reference here because it's interesting. You bring up Doctor No, and the, and certainly this is a classical touch. This, but apparently, I couldn't verify this. But apparently, one there's two curious uh, extras in this scene. One of them won a competition in like 1989 <laughs> to appear in the next Bond film, and it took six years, but. She cashed in. She was brought back in. Nice. So in the in the background of one, there's a competition winner uh, who had to wait her turn. But also somewhere as an extra is a woman named Kate Gason, who is apparently Eunice Gason's daughter. And mm-hmm. Eunice is, of course, as we remember, is Sylvia Trench, Sylvia Trench from Doctor No and from Russia with Love. Literally the first Bond girl, uh, effectively, or at least the first girl that Bond sleeps with in a Bond movie and then returns in the next movie and honestly I think she's an unsung hero of the entire franchise and I wish she got her own spin-off but that's never happened but anyhow yeah. a nice little piece of history there as you say as we kind of re-establish Bond uh, playing Bacharach and uh, honestly I still uh, I don't know it's so weird like it's a game of chance and everything but we're supposed to go like Bond is so good at it <laughs> it doesn't really read as being good it's just like he loses at first and then he wins and that's more important and it's yeah. like he planned it but I don't think he really planned it but who knows it's um, yeah but it's, yes it's, we, it's we are introduced to our lead female villain as uh, Xenia on the top who I think is really funny because on the top is clearly a semi-sexual pun, right. but Money Penny they actually make it, yeah, yeah. Money Penny actually explicates it, which is uh, pointless, frankly. Yeah, it's, but yeah. okay, it's a real have your cake and eat it too moment where you you can't call out your own pun, uh, Bond right. film. Yeah, I mean, I think we're gonna figure it out. Like we we know where we're going at this point. They've done more advanced ones. Like my my personal favorite, Jenny Flex. I think it's a, that's my. All-time favorite. That's a great one. They did Pussy Galore. I think we can figure out on a top. But anyhow, yeah, uh, yeah it's it's a it's a a thing. Why not? And she is, of course, the woman that he raced in the Ferrari previously. Yeah, yeah. I, I was gonna say that. Um, I think Famke Jensen is a really good Bond girl. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm curious what you guys' thoughts are, but she reads to me like somebody who has uh agency and um oh gosh i don't know if i'd go so far as to call her like a progressive character no but, I, um, yeah i don't she know it's like pleasure she gets like her own pleasure from from things and that seems to be central to her character but yeah um, i mean she i think i think she's given a she's, she's given a, a hook and she dives into it i mean like she's literally she's yeah. a woman who gets off on killing people which you right know, and, and but, it, it, you know, she's she, she's much less cardboard than uh i mean one she's she's the villain but she's much less cardboard than like the ones to come you know D- denise richards and, and holly berry from my memory yeah sure she's, yeah i would agree both of them in this film fare pretty well on the bond girl metric of women who get to do some things yeah, probably not since uh, there's been a character who's just sort of relished this role as much as uh, uh, Fiona Volpe from Thunderball, who's yes. very much a very similar uh, sadistic but enjoying every minute um, type of female va- Bond villain. Um, so that's a uh, yeah. I think I think for the at least for the first half of the movie, um, Famke Jansen steals the show. 
she's she's quite good and really enjoying it she brings the right type of energy to the film i do i do enjoy it like i i just i do want to get it because if Anki Anson was made i think she's about 25 in this film i'm, I'm not sure oh, exactly wow. uh she yeah she's 25 years old or no sorry no she wasn't she was uh she's a little older than that she was um I don't have exactly, but 31, I think, actually. Mm. So, you know, youngish, but, you know, uh, this was kind of one of her first bigger roles. I believe she's, you know, uh, starting off as, as usually the case for Bond girls. And most of them are not particularly established actresses when they go into the franchise. But I kind of wish I could see Famke Hansen getting the script that literally outlines her character as someone who has really strong thighs she uses to kill people with. <laughs> yeah, she, just, kills, uh, uh, she kills poor Paul Bartel on a cruise liner that has the, the Black Tiger helicopter. Yes, uh, our Canadian admiral uh, who pulls rank on Bond to get the girl in the casino, but it doesn't right. work out for him uh, yeah. as he ends up with, uh, who knows, a crushed sternum. We're not quite sure why he <laughs> dies from, but uh, from blunt force asphyxiation to the torso by legs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Put that down on the coroner report. It's, yeah, and his uh, his... His death paralysis face is really funny. Um, I think. Yeah, it's a classic. The next day, a classic. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and I guess this leads us into from the casino to the stealing of the helicopter. Stealing the uh, helicopter, which is which brief. is our yeah, yeah our our uh, new advanced helicopter. Uh, weird factoid: one of the pilots of the helicopter who is killed by on the top who steals it uh, is actually the stuntman who did the base jump at the pre-credit sequence. He got a little cameo in the film again, uh, and we get the stealing of the helicopter. It it seems a little weird that they. Uh, basically parade a new attack helicopter in like the bay in monte carlo i don't know why that location was chosen but they literally just get in the helicopter and fly away and there's no contingency plans whatsoever for tracking it. you can't track it it's radar invisible at least they say it is until later on they do an aerial photo with like spy satellites and there's just this uh, helicopter shaped black spot on all of the aerial photos which allows them to immediately identify it's a helicopter which seemed like a, a pretty amusing plot device but anyhow, uh, so so they steal it, and then we head to some some barren outpost in in Russia, in the former Soviet Union, uh, where a team of computer engineers are working on. I don't know what they're working on, but they control an old uh, spot, like laser satellite, a secret weapon. I don't know what they're exactly doing because there seems to be some confusion about the activity of this weapon, or who knows about it, or who's maintaining it. But um. This, of course, introduces us to our main Bond girl, the good Bond girl, yeah. uh, who is Natalia Simonova, and also to another one of our enemies, who is Boris Grushenko, played by Alan Cumming, who is, uh, on, I think, is pretty pretty solid in his role, again, just relishing playing, honestly, a just screaming Russian stereotype. Um because why not? It's pretty funny, this whole thing. Is, this is the first James Bond movie to shoot in Russia, uh, they never shot as much as we had antagonisms. They never actually got into Russia previously. This is the first one that actually shot on location in Russia. Uh, there is not a single Russian person on the cast of this film. Nope. They managed to dot around. They have a Polish person and a Dutch person and a German person and a French person. Uh, Alan Cumming and Robbie Coltrane are both Scottish and play Russian people. <laughs> they just literally just missed the entire country somehow. I, I like... Uh... When I was uh, watching this as a kid, 
the Alan Cumming character was uh, an important figure to me. Um, uh, I don't know why. The Maybe sex just puns. Just, yeah, and he had uh, catchphrases and stuff like that. But um, <clears throat> he's interesting, or I guess he's interesting. He's kind of kind of a lame character in retrospect. But um, one thing that struck me as interesting to this movie, again, as far as the first Bond movie of the 90s, is the representation of technology and the hacking. Um, oh, yes. Yes, what, pretty, what is a spike? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it feels and like someone overheard something once. This is like um, what uh, two years after Jurassic Park where they do like the same like sexy woman, uh, like, you know, this like silhouetted, whatever, you know, this stupid like cyber thing um, for passwords. It's just so... His password at one point is like knockers or something. Yes, this this came uh, out the same year as the net with Sandra Bullock, yeah, where she yeah. carries the internet on a single she floppy orders disk. Pizza on pizza.net. That's right. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that, it, it's uh, pretty funny, just as a, a curio of the time. Yeah, um, it's, it's it amazing is, how I mean, with the advent of the internet, this was like the height of what people could do was just passwords with dirty messages um yeah that you get yeah. someone to type knockers into a computer was like the <laughs> it's just an incredible thing you could do i guess i guess and if we were looking for if we we're looking for progressive messaging uh, uh we we could talk about women in tech uh, and that simonova overcomes the the inherent uh misogyny of the industry by basically besting Boris in the Boris in the end and yeah. by, by undoing him. Um which, you know, I guess if if you want to cling to that as something, you're welcome to. Uh it's sort of an afterthought, but I guess it works out a little bit. I but I guess it does it does play into the fact that the the Bond girls in this film are quite capable, frankly, maybe a little too capable in one sense, because uh Simonova honestly uh, she's a computer coder, but honestly, she's very athletic and very able to escape from the uh, huge explosion and climb yeah. up stuff. And she's and a survivor. She's, she is a survivor, certainly. Uh, I don't know. She's probably hitting the gym after after every computer coding session she's in on. But I suppose getting getting back to the story, uh, um, who is Oromov and and as uh, God, it's hard to just keep up with the names and on a top. <laughs> top show up and they they murder everyone in this outpost and steal the golden eye weapon and then erase their tracks by firing the golden eye weapon at the place which causes a massive emp pulse which knocks out all the electronics and then causes everything to explode uh in something that frankly i don't think is ever particularly clearly elaborated it's just sort of what happens and the whole place collapses in on itself and uh a really cool kind of miniature i think this is all done with miniatures largely there's a lot of miniature work in this film yeah um of just huge collapsing building and radar dish and everything um, and a kind of a nice little touch as well um that Simonova escapes from on a top the two women face off against each other here and the the battle of wits is won by Simonova who basically does a little bit of uh, misdirection and makes it look like she escaped out through an air vent but she in fact hid in a cupboard and it it works out it's kind of like just one of those little nice little touches to kind of set up things yeah uh yeah i think the this sequence um plays a little bit too long um especially like uh, natalia walking around and surviving more fallout explosions 
there's a lot of collapsing yeah yeah it's a little it gets a little tiresome for me for a bit this is kind of where <laughs> it's like they, they just had flag. too many they had too many models and they're like yeah. no we have to break them all this is i mean but yeah this is I, I just chalk it up to the production where this is you know bond's been away for so long they throw in everything in the kitchen sink to try to win back the the world to this this once thriving franchise so um but yeah word on natalia uh I forgot how great she was in this movie, uh, Isabella Skorupko. I think, I'll, as much as I say that Sanchez is one of the unsung and underrated villains of the the entire series, I think she's one of the best and underrated Bond girls in the series. And like you said, she's you know she has a very she doesn't have a quote unquote sexy job, but she's still a very capable, tough survivor of a woman. I I really. I really like her, Sean. What did you? Do you have any thoughts about uh, uh, Natalia in the film? Uh, nothing particular. I mean, I have nothing bad to say, but yeah. nothing uh, particularly articulate. That's fair. Yeah. No. No. I, I. I would say I think it's just it. If we're we're scaling this, uh, you know, Bond movies have to be really gauged uh, to some degree against each other. That yeah, I think the banter, right. the the repartee between them is certainly so much better, particularly after. Well, um, License to Kill was interesting. You had, you know, uh, Carol Lowell, I think, was really good in her. Yeah. There was kind of a family bond almost in that. A strangely kind of personable thing happening there. Uh, this one, but, you know, like most Bond girls are just sort of, they, they just go, oh, James, when he says something just just <laughs> terrible. And then they just hang out with him anyway. Yeah. Because um, who else is going to save their life, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. yeah they, I, I don't think, I don't think, in, yeah. I, I don't think anybody's bad in the movie. I mean, Alan Cummings isn't bad. It's more of like his the characterization. But um, yeah, I don't. I don't think anybody's badness. The misgivings I have are sort of outside performances. I, I think. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it certainly leans into uh, like there's there's a broadness which I think is required. For yeah. the, particularly for the villains. Um, you know, you go big or you go home. Sure. Um, certainly. So, okay. So, so we have uh, the golden eye process is stolen. Uh, where where do we go after that, Jake? It's, honestly, the middle section of this film goes a little bit awry for me. That's fair. So yeah, after that, then the entire uh, Q or M sequence happens, and then we go to Q Lab, um, which is just uh, overflowing with background activity. Their there's workplace a, safety record is appalling. <laughs> yeah, there's a guy who gets stuck in a phone booth that has a an airbag that fills it up for some reason. One guy in the background is just launched out of the chair he's sitting in. Um, Bond gets handed an explodable pen, uh, which plays into the climax of the film. So, uh, yeah. There, there's also the mm -hmm. unusual, um, they, they introduce his car, his BMW Z3, and they uh -huh. mention all of the uh, equipment yeah. that the car has, none of which will be deployed Not in this once film. uses it, no. The, right. Because apparently oh, BMW no. signed the, they, they signed in their product late and that, that arrangement was agreed <laughs> late. They didn't have time, so the car is there, but it's barely used. They actually but just it, drive it. Is, it is used in Illusion. Where uh, you know uh, what's his name gets in the car and he says, "I'm just gonna bob around." And oh yeah, yeah, no, it's it's definitely the joy of driving is captured. <laughs> but but you don't know, or uh, the idea that it could do something is is loaded in that um, exchange between them. It says like, "Don't push any buttons." Oh yeah, uh, well, yeah. that's the weird thing. So many of these movies, they just get something they do push the buttons. Like in License to Kill, the last one, some the woman nearly kills someone by just like, oh, it's you know, 
Here the, the Q introduces like seven explosive things and then she just grabs something out of the same suitcase, points it at them and pulls a button. It's like, are you not paying attention? There's a theme to these devices. <laughs> I do. I, I like the joke in, uh, when he's showing them all the gadgets um, where he picks up the sandwich and he goes, that's my lunch. Um, <laughs> it's a well delivered. Uh, at, no point, at no point is, the, is it shown that his lunch is there or that somebody got him lunch. Um, but... Uh, it's a funny joke. That's, I mean, just yeah. you don't just leave her. Like, it honestly, it's a massive sob too. Like yeah, Q yeah. is packing it away, uh, just left out on a table. Yeah, probably full of shrapnel by the end of the day, based on what's going on around him. It's funny to think of Desmond Llewellyn, just, just nice old man, just eating a big sloppy sub sandwich. Yeah, like a foot and a half a sandwich every yeah. day. <laughs> so, so after the Q lab, uh, we go to Russia proper. Bond meets his uh, U.S. Uh, contact, which is not Felix Leiter. It's a guy named Jack Wade, who's played by Joe Don Baker, who once played the Bond villain in Living Daylights. Uh, I'm not sure why they recast him in the role, but um, he's he's here. He's got a weird Muffy tattoo. Uh, he he had some <laughs> had some comic relief to the film. It's a strange, yeah, that's strange. And like, there's a lot of strange comedy to this. And again, it kind of draws out a little bit that he has to fix his like crappy Russian car because Russia builds crappy cars or whatever. Uh, you know, like it's like the old Lada jokes writ large. Um, well, you what's, know. what's funny about that, though, is because is he says that they're in the car and, and he says, oh, this baby's been getting me through all the years. And in the very next scene, they're pulled over on the side of a busy intersection trying to trying to repair it, which he ends up doing by hitting it with a sledgehammer. But uh, <laughs> yeah, just like, yeah, well, why not? And the, yeah, I say the Muffy tattoo, which is sort of a. <laughs> it's just a strange aside, honestly. That's really, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, and then, it was very nice to see Joe Don Baker. I saw his name in the in the title, yeah. in the opening titles. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> From uh, and then does this, does this does this bring us on to uh, to Valentine? That's oh, right. Yeah, Valentine is our contact. This actually has one of my one of the, my favorite parts, which is honestly the cameo by Mini Driver, <laughs> which I actually did a kind of a double take. Yeah, I was yeah. like, is that is that Mini Driver strangling a cat? Yeah, she? yeah, yeah. yeah. Mini Driver is the singer in the red rodeo outfit. Yeah, okay. she, she is dubbed, but honestly, she's selling like just. Uh, admittedly, Mini Driver's like bigger film career was going to be a little bit ahead of her. Uh, Gross Point Blank and stuff would come out two years and Goodwill Hunting him and what like ninety seven, yeah. ninety eight or so. So I mean, like her her bigger roles were ahead of her, but um, she still had to you know I, I Circle of Friends is probably her big film at this point, but it's sort of just a strange thing for her to show up in. She'd done a lot of TV at that point, just in this small role. Doing a Russian accented "Stand by Your Man," I believe she was dubbed. Apparently, it's not her voice, but uh, just a very silly um, kind of sequence thrown away, and and the interrogation happening uh, nearby. So you know this brutal interrogation with with Valentine shooting the the seat, threatening Bond's genitals, uh, and and meanwhile we have this ridiculous Russian karaoke occurring in the background. Yeah, so um, Zukovsky, he and Bond, like, they have a lot of very witty repartee, as was mentioned earlier. There's a lot of a lot of the dialogue in this film threatens to dip into uh, pun territory, where just the quips just come fast and loose. And um, mm-hmm. when, when they before they meet Zukovsky, uh, Bond asks, "So, is, are we meeting this guy? Does he have a limp?" And then uh, Jonah Baker asks, well, how did you know that? And Bond says, I gave him the limp. And 
Um, so a lot of, uh, there's occasional touches where it, it, it's, it gets a little cute, but, um, I, I'll admit that it's not as egregious as some of the later Bond films, like Die Another Day, basically every other line is a pun. Um, you take a shot every time you'll, right. you'll kill yourself. To be fair, yeah. I mean, the Roger Moore era wasn't exactly, uh, innocent on that front either. Right. But you know, that had swaths of real dialogue exchanges but yeah so Zukovsky they discuss um the Lien's Cossacks who uh were aligned themselves with the Nazis and then were sent back to Stalin by the British after World War II and most were executed and uh the figurehead behind the stealing of the helicopter is this uh Yanis crime syndicate um so Bond uh goes back to like a uh Russian bathhouse where he encounters Xenia she tries to do her uh, scissor leg death move on him, but he overpowers her with the use of a steam uh, machine, I guess is what it is, or some rocks. And uh, she takes and the towel stay on the whole time. The towel stay on the whole time. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, I do like I do like his line. It's a classy affair. Indeed. I do like his line after he throws her down where he says no more foreplay, cocks the gun without flinching and then says, take me to Giannis. That's a. It's a cool little moment. I think Brosnan and, oh, and and apparently Jansen, uh, Famke Jansen broke a rib shooting that too. Uh, uh, so you know what? Yeah, they ow. they some someone's throwing Bond pushing her up against the wall. Apparently she 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 told him to do it for real and uh, that there you go. So it you know, looks it's not like quite he's really there. slamming her around. Yeah, it's it's a pretty physical fight. Honestly, it's not like quite up there with like Eastern Promises or Red Heat and the uh, the <laughs> amazing canon of uh, Russian bathhouse fisticuffs. But yeah. uh, it's not it's not a bad entry. And yeah. I, as I joke, I mean, I think the main thing is like most of these fights are typified by their their male nudity. But in this case, uh, we have a man and a woman, and uh, no nudity or threat thereof at all. And no, strangely right. desexualized version, uh, very which makes me wonder why are they in a bathhouse? But of course, I guess it's quintessentially <laughs> Russian, so they had to do it. I just I do always appreciate how the Bond films seem to just kind of it just so casually lead into stereotype. Like why why even resist? You know, it's all there. <laughs> you know, true. So eh, yeah. why not? Well, this leads into one of my favorite scenes in the film, which is which takes place in the Soviet Union graveyard, where it's just just a collection of all these fallen statues of figures from the last 50 years of history and bond meets janice who turns out to be his good friend 006 horribly scarred but uh alive and well and orchestrating everything and this is a, he was his family were leon's cossacks so this is him getting his revenge on the british government um uh but he they have a they have a nice little uh nighttime chat before he knocks out bond and puts him in a helicopter which is rigged to explode with natalia um, it's it's not even rigged to explode. It's rigged to fire its heat-seeking missiles or something, which then turn right. back on. It's a very convoluted death. Yeah, um, and for a man who surely knows 007's uh, abilities, I feel like shooting him probably would have been better. Uh, but anyhow, I mean, it's, again, this is a tried and tested method well, of doing it. I'm, so when they put him in the helicopter, did nobody notice the big red ejector button next to Bond's forehead? Right, right. But his head, yeah, they tie his hands down to the thing, but they just leave with the, like a functioning ejector seat. Yeah. Um, also, yeah. if uh, although I, I think it's kind of funny because if I re remember correctly, a lot of like helicopters do it. There's always a joke about helicopters having ejector seats because obviously it would fire you up to the helicopter blades. But uh, a lot of helicopters, I believe, do have ejector seats, but I think they shoot you down. 
Uh, but this one detaches the blades and shoots them. God only knows where they go uh, when they're on the ground. There could be some property damage caused from that, but then fires them up in the air. So the missiles blow them up in a sequence that honestly is uh, strangely uh, similar to Die Hard 2, uh, which has a similar... Too, yeah, yeah, yeah where, where John McClane does a similar thing in that film, which was directed by Rennie Harlan, who nearly directed this film or was offered <laughs> it at one point. So it's a weird quasi-incestuous... Uh, kind of grouping of things um, and I'm frankly honestly gold, like compared to Die Hard 2 GoldenEye is like the picture of maturity and, and taste and restraint so I guess yeah. that's saying something yeah so moving forward a little bit uh, Bond and Natalia are captured by the Russians they're interrogated by the defense uh, minister Dmitry Mishkin uh, Ormov comes in, kills Mishkin uh, and then tries to have Bond and Natalia killed but they escape Natalia is eventually kidnapped and taken back to Alec on his train, but uh, Bond gives chase in uh, what I think is the action highlight of the film, which is a tank trace chase through St. Petersburg, which is just as uh, fun and fantastic and glorious as I remembered it, because it has just the right amount of property damage. Um, Jack, Sean, what are you guys' thoughts on this excellent taste a chase i keep mixing taste <laughs> sequence of the chain it's it's very good. tasteful it is very, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good uh yeah no i think i think this works pretty well um and i think we're really honestly if we're saying you know cement pierce brosnan in the role there's that one little oh, cutaway yeah. of him fixing his tie after running right. through like a building and it's like that you know I don't, you know, you have to be pretty cynical about the whole James Bond franchise. I'm sure there's people out there who are, and I couldn't exactly blame them for it. But, you know, that's the kind of moment I think that, you know, if you can get on board there, then probably there's some other parts of the franchise you can get on board with. It's just a very silly but sort of appropriate touch. But, yeah, um, this is a huge sequence, an action sequence in terms of literally... A tank running through buildings so they they didn't shoot most of this in russia they built and you know they they built it off and i think a race course in england actually i think we'd done like an epcot or somewhere um or epson rather uh epcot being in like disney Ep- world huh? yeah no, yeah let's see the other one um so yeah but but uh it's it this is pretty solid um i know as remy julien i believe is the the car stunt coordinator in this he wasn't licensed to kill as well and it's pretty you know he's a a very well established stunt driver and his team i think worked with uh several i think mean, they've done stuff in the taxi series with luke basson and stuff and they're good guys to call if you want to drive cars around very quickly and crash them um but yeah, this this sequence is is just pretty great in terms of just all the usual car tropes, but then just a tank <laughs> lodged in the middle, just able to run yeah. through everything. Yeah, I, I I liked it. Like I kept um uh wondering what was going to happen. Like if it was going to be able to go through stuff, or I, I, you know if it was going to be able to meet, if it was going to meet an impasse or or what have you. Um, obviously it it was illogical that it was able to keep up a similar pace but yeah. uh, it was fun yeah i think my favorite detail is um godfrey john furiously taking swigs out of his flask in the back of his car as fun keeps gaining up on him in the tank right, everything right. ripped by the time they they get to the to the train yeah. but yeah i, I kind of like i like this sequence well because i think there's like uh the bond series this place at this point has done so many you know car chases through packed urban centers uh, this is kind of this, you know, so this kind of 
plays with the idea of just handing Bond just this indestructible mechanism. It sort of throws off the power balance on it and just allows Bond to just kind of run carefree. Um, and it's just kind of a comic sensibility to it. Um, and that they're trying to, you know, the cars have to be accurate and weave through traffic and, you know, skillfully navigate, you know, s- you know, sliding around through corners to fit through passageways. And then the tank just goes straight through everything. And I mean, they do they do skid the tank at one point, which I'm oh, not an expert on tanks. Tank I believe that's tricky. Drifting. To, yeah, yeah. I think it's tricky to drift a tank. I believe that's not uh, normally something they're known to do, but they managed to do that through a building. So, um, you know, I, I just think there's a comic element to it. I think it works well. It's sort of like, you know, as we think of like true lies and that's even with the Harrier jet like coming up out of nowhere. It's just like <laughs> this just absolute overkill of machinery, like just uh, such a incongruous element to the setting. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, why not? You know, it, it works within the context of it. You know, certainly not going to win the British uh, Secret Service much favor with the Russians, but I guess at this point, Bond is suspect of killing their foreign minister or whatever. Uh, so, which speaking of which, actually, uh, Chechi Karo, I think, I can't, I'm not sure how exactly pronounce his name. Yeah. Uh, plays Mishkin, who is at this point dead. He has a fairly small role. But uh, for some reason, for him, I feel like I should watch more of his films because I don't know, in the 90s, just seemed like he was always on TV and movies when I was tuning in. And they always seemed like I was like a kid mostly, you know, and, and a lot of these movies were like not kids movies. Uh, they were like kind of sem- like that those 90s, like slightly sexy thrillers that were very 90s construction that unfortunately I feel like we've lost in American cinema particularly. Um, you know, we need to bring yeah. back the, the like the, the sexy thriller like most of them were terrible, but they were kind of terrible in a pretty funny way. I just feel like he was in a bunch of those, and I and I don't know if that's just a very selective memory on my part or not. So I feel like I should go and find more of his movies. He plays. Um, uh, he's uh, another Lupin connection. He's the handler in the agency in uh, La Femme Nikita. That's true. Yes. So, that's yeah. Yeah. Ah. He's he's got a great face. He's a pretty cool, pretty cool. Uh, I believe he's French character. He is. Yeah. Yes. Pretty cool character actor. Um, but anyhow, so so we have yeah. the tank, which brings us to the train, mm-hmm. um, which brings us to the tank shooting the train, which is never <laughs> not great in any movie. Yeah, <laughs> but if you can do that, why wouldn't you? Uh, so um, yeah, it's the shortest train in history. It looks like it has a total of like three carriages. I'm not sure what exactly is on it, but uh, bon- I don't even know how Bond manages to get in front of it. But he manages to pull the tank in front of the train and on the tracks, nonetheless. So he must have just hopped down a hill somewhere. Yeah, on the oh yeah, yeah, because that's that's true. And then um, did they escape? Did someone escape from the train? Because I was thinking at that point, it's really good they didn't that the train didn't explode. Yeah, the train doesn't explode in the tunnel because they have to get out, pull her out through the top of the the train. No, but the so front of the train actually bursts through the tank and blows the tank to pieces, and Bond jumps okay. out of that at the last moment. So Jumps out of that, yeah, and so, but then the rest of it is not in the tunnel, because right. if it was stuck in the tunnel, Natalia would have died. So I think that was, uh, I don't know if Bond had planned on that particularly, but that worked out pretty well. Yeah. You're know, just looking at these things going like, man, that's a big risk he just took, but I guess it paid off. Yeah, so in this process, uh, Oromov is killed. Um, Alec and Xenia escape through some bulletproof glass, and they seal up the train with the intention of blowing it up in three minutes, which is the same three minutes that Bond gave uh, Alec at the beginning of the film. 
which to to you know to to be fair to Bond, he didn't think that his that 006 was still alive when it was staged that he was shot. So I don't know how this if this whole grudge thing works over the six minutes, three minutes thing. But um, yeah, Bond escapes with his uh, watch laser. Uh, Natalia cracks the code for Boris's uh, spike and finds that oh he's in uh, he's in they're in Cuba. So then this uh, leads us to Cuba. Uh, where the film kind of slows down before the the third act. Yeah, you can say that again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the the just the relaxing on Cuba sequences, Sean. Uh, was that where? <laughs> was that was that with like the where they're on the water and there's like the freaking like Thomas Kincaid like lighting. Like yeah. the speech, the yeah. sunset. Was, okay, the, the, I I didn't mind that. I didn't mind that. I mean, that was just kind of funny. There's the weird like uh, crotch shot of Natalia. She approaches Bond. On yeah, the, what the fuck was that? I have no idea. I was like, I I, I was. It's funny you mentioned that. I forgot about that. But I was just like, I I get like sometimes shots start like that, and it like you know it's because it's waiting for a character to move into it. Yeah, and all that. All that she did was just move her crotch into the shot, and it was, like, veiled most of the time, but it was just like, wait a second, that was the whole shot? Yeah, yeah Sean, um, go, should go, go, back to, go back to, like, 12-year-old you and reassess, you know? <laughs> maybe it works. Maybe, maybe it's a, just a, a pointed observation on how uh, Bond views women. I don't know. It's, uh, it's, Could yeah. be. No, but I, I don't mind, like, the, the, you know, sunset shots and stuff like that. They look kind of funny just because they're, like, so, like... They look like they're from like a eighties like um, Jeff Bridges movie or something. <laughs> but um, fun, but, the fun uh, thing actually about the the cinematography yeah. in this, just because I, I it occurred to me, is that it was this film was shot by Phil Mayhew, um, who just is a weird, just random connection gay. Also shot, I believe, the Long Good Friday, uh, which mm. had oh, a okay. very very early role for uh, Pierce Brosnan as a is possibly gay IRA uh, hitman. It's so, uh, a his first role, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. Yeah, it's certainly very very early in his career. So it's just sort of a, oh, a weird little connection there. But uh, yeah. Pierce Brosnan certainly not potentially gay in this film. They they did away <laughs> with that plot thread pretty quickly. No, he definitely has maybe by we don't know. Eh, maybe it's true. And maybe. no Bob Hoskins, no like Secret Service. I've shit him. None of that. <laughs> no spoilers. Still sitting on my shelf. Uh, Bob Hoskins would have been a great Bond villain back he in the day. Would have, yeah, honestly, I would have rooted for him. <laughs> that, uh, I'd be like, kill him, kill him, kill him. What was that um, Focus Features Kung Fu movie he did? Uh, I mean, not not actually Kung Fu, the, but um, the one with uh, Jet Li. Unleashed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. the Unleashed. Unleashed. Yeah. Which is called, it was called, wasn't called like Danny the Dog or something and some things. Yeah. Like, I feel like I it think that was his character titles. or something. His yeah, yeah, he's Danny. Bad, bad movie. <laughs> Jet Li had a few of those in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, not I the one, a, which everyone good, remembers uh, classic. Not, yeah. Not to get too off topic, I remember a good brawl in a bathroom, which is pretty nice because it's yeah. all close quarters. Yeah, but, uh, I don't think it, I don't think it was without uh, some decent scenes, but, but uh, yeah. yeah. Anyways, yeah, on to Act Three of Goldeneye. Uh, we go to uh, the people came here for Unleashed. Case, <laughs> That's gonna be the next series. Danny is Jet Li yeah. in the nineties. Oh we're man, just gonna go through all of those, and we're gonna you know count down the best needle drops of the one. <laughs> Who will survive? One will is, be left of them. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Bond is, uh, they're on a plane. It's shot down by an underwater satellite. I think that's a word I wrote down more than any other word when I was taking notes is satellite. Film is obsessed with this satellites. Is a, this is the stupidest the thing. 90s. Okay, so so they're flying around looking for this radar base, and they can find nothing because it turns out it's completely submerged in a lake, uh, which apparently was built in Cuba without America ever figuring that out, which seems a little bit unlikely to me, uh, considering America's general paranoia over that whole area. Um, but honestly, they would have gotten away with it if they didn't try to shoot the damn plane down. Yeah. They were about to leave, and then suddenly a missile fires out of the water. And lets them know, oh, this must be the place. So, you know, they could have just sat tight and they would have been fine. They would have got away scot-free. So, oops. Well, you yeah. know. Yeah, so this leads to on a top trying to kill Bond again <laughs> with uh, some more leg-crushing action. But uh, with Natalia's help, he shoots up at her helicopter that's holding her. And she's pulled up and crushed between uh, the, the U-bend of a, of a tree Trunk? I've got to admit, why why would you jump out of a helicopter and then leave yourself attached to the helicopter? That's no, uh, uh, no idea. No <laughs> idea. Uh, I don't know why the uh, helicopter. There's another thing too, a recurring theme with this uh, film is that uh, every vehicle explodes as soon as it crashes. Like the in the tank chase in Russia, the one of the jeeps goes off the edge of the bridge into the water and it explodes midair. Jeeps don't, I mean, this goes back to Dr. No, where vehicles uh, have some sort of traction point on their tires where if they leave the ground, they it just spontaneously combust into flame. Um, it's just what happens. But, yeah. I mean, an entire satellite base exploded earlier just because the computers crashed. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's a thing. Yeah. So anyways, on top is dead. Uh, they infiltrate the, uh, the satellite base, um, but are captured. Uh, Bond plants a bomb under some uh, leaking uh, containers of uh, what look like fuel. Um, this section, this section reminds me a lot actually of video games. I was yeah. thinking of this in the context of Goldeneye because like sure. every first person shooter had those like limpet mines you could stick on things and they'd yeah. like either go on a timer or you could detonate them separately a little later on and you'd always like try and put them in a good place to take out a bunch of guys. This, I feel like it was predicting, you know, kind of game tech yeah. for the next while. This mission in the game is a bitch because you have to stand by and guard Natalia as she spends like 20 minutes hacking the computer and shooting anybody that tries to shoot her and there's like hundreds of guys that swarm into the room and I was so frustrated trying to beat this level and when I finally did, I don't think I ever played it again. But, that was uh, the infamously worst. Like every video game, I don't know if they still do it now. I don't play as many video games, but that was always yeah. the thing. It's like guard this character. Guard and the character is the person thick who can't as fight. pig yeah. shit and suicidal, and it's like guard, don't <laughs> let them die. And they're like, I'm sexually attracted to bullets. Yeah, and it's like please stop. Uh, yeah, ah, I hate those ah. missions. Always happening. Uh, but, I never uh, played the game like straight through. I just played with other people. Yeah. That's fair. You know, honestly, as I think about it, I don't think I ever played the, the single-player campaign of uh, of Goldeneye either. I never owned an a N64. I had to go to a friend's house. So, yeah, we were always yeah. on the four-screen split play. That's fair. Well, yeah, so, but yeah, Natalia does end up uh, hacking Boris's uh, codes to reposition the satellite. And while he's trying to fix it, there's this nifty little sequence where he's uh, clicking the uh, the bomb exploding pen, which is armed after you click it three times. <laughs> Which is an insanely dangerous device. Let's yeah. be clear here. That's a terrible idea from QLab. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's it's always this is one of those 
movie magic things that works for me because I don't think if you were really to break it down click by click, I don't know or think uh, that the, each of the clicks would correspond with arming and disarming the pen. But uh, that's that, to me, that's not the point. The, the point is that Bond knows what it is. He's watching it carefully and counting himself, and he's the only one who knows. So it works for him, and if it works for him, it works for me. That's yeah. That's no, all it's I'll it's, say a, about it. it's it's a solid integration. I don't think it's you know. Yeah. It's this pen that looks like any other pen. What happens when Bond has more than one pen in his pocket? And next thing he's like, uh, I just got to be really careful with my checkbook from here on out. <laughs> That's true. Um, but yeah, so the uh, the base explodes, um, but Boris still stays determined trying to fix the uh, the codes. Um, guards start shooting and exploding. Bond runs outside and has a fight with uh, Alec Trevelyan in a little uh, a little shack where there's a uh, where he stops the the positioning of the satellite dish by just jamming a long metal crowbar into its uh, turning chain, um, which I guess works because it, you know, it ends up destroying the whole unit. Um, and they have a pretty good uh, hand-to-hand fight sequence as well. Um, I mean, they do. Uh, Barton Campbell says he was he was drawing from from Russia with love with this one. The the train fight between Bond and totally, Red Grant. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah, I mean, there's there's a physicality here. I will say, um, the editing in this this uh, sequence, they, a lot of the actors did their own stunts, which I think probably necessitated it. But there was um. You know, I'm always looking for like a couple of surprises in the choreography and where the cuts come in to kind of like give me a little bit more movement. You know, it's kind of like, you know, where a stunt hits and where you would expect the edit to conceal the stuntman, where it would, you know, cut to the next take. You kind of learn to read those things. So I'm always looking at an action sequence for something that kind of like surprises, you know, injects just a little more or a little something I'm not expecting. And this one doesn't quite do that. There's one, there's a great uh, stunt and I'm trying to remember the exact specificity of the stunt, but it's like a guy, it's like, he jumps over, I think he's like, he, he dives and grabs the gun or whatever, like in a forward leaping motion, but like cuts halfway through the, the jump and it's this kind of jarring, you know, something that I think clearly came out of stunt necessity rather than sort of the, hmm. you know, generating of a real kind of kinetic sequence. So, the, you know, it, it's not a bad fight, but it's it doesn't... Uh, Personally, I don't think it matches actually the the from Russia with love fight, which you know benefits I think from much closer quarters. Um, but you know it, it works and it's got it's got a bit of a punch. You know it does benefit I guess at least from Sean Bean and Pierce Brosnan and being in there in the flesh, which kind of gives a it helps a little bit. At least you know you don't have you know all whirling black bags or whatever in front of the the cameras you get in so many action movies where they've just completely substituted out the main guys and left the stuntmen unfettered but also unseen yeah and their final confrontation on the little dangling spike is uh pretty incredible uh, i think um sean do you have any uh any thoughts about the uh this this whole ending here not particularly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's Hitchcockian, I, I mean, right? I mean, it's it's like a grand, sure. a grand uh, height and uh, grand stakes. I enjoyed it because uh, my attention was running. I mean, like, what is this? A hundred and thirty, hundred and thirty minutes, around, yeah. Uh, I I was just kind of like, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, <laughs> all right, we're almost there. Um, I enjoyed this movie overall, but uh, I mean. I, you know, I was I was reading something before I watched it that was like somebody just like some comment or something about like how cool the um, sculpture maze scene is, and I was like, oh cool, I'll be excited to get because this is like a comment from somebody who didn't 
like it that much, but really like the scene. And I was like halfway in the middle of that scene, which is towards, I don't think it's towards the end, but in the last third, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like halfway in that, in the middle of that scene. I was like, wait, this is, this is the scene that is really cool. Okay. Uh, well, it's only downhill from here. Uh, but I mean, the climax is bad, or it isn't bad, and none of the set pieces are really uh, bad. It's it's just the stuff that um, ties them together that just kind of accumulates to just kind of drag for me. I was just multiple times watching this, going, maybe Bond films are just aren't for me. Yeah, um, I mean, I think certainly they get captured a lot in this movie. I think they got trimmed a little bit of that. <laughs> There's a lot of like we've been captured and we have to escape, and then they get captured again, and yeah, sort of. And, and I mean, like, uh, and as these went on, the Pierce Brosnan phase, um, my guess, just from memory, is that they become um, a bit like uh, homogenous in that in that style, and so it seems to me that the Daniel Craig like sort of break was was pretty necessary. Yeah, they're very uh, they're very set piece heavy. Um, Brosnan's films, and, it, right. and there's so much so that they're kind of programmed in a way where it's just basically it, the movie is just becomes a series of 15 minute countdowns to the next action sequence. And I think, and that's that stuff combined with like the fact that they don't use the gadgets in the car. Yeah. Like I like the gadget yeah. scene here. Yeah, and. Um, uh, but then, yeah, that it's not used. You can't be like, oh, cool. Yeah. Well, he does use the uh, the grappling hook belt. Uh, That's true. Yeah, yeah, and I thought that was interesting when, um, yeah. you know, how he asks, um, what about for two? And she's like, we only test it for one. Yeah. Or your body weight or whatever. Um, I was like, I thought that, because he was with, uh, what's her name? And I thought that he was just going to go, oh, well, we'll see. Yeah. You know, and try it with two and then she like jumped off and I was like oh man <laughs> yeah but no she's just immediately I think falls through the grading in the, the yeah. library archive wherever they are um, right. but uh, yeah Sean Bean falls to his almost death and then the whole his whole satellite <laughs> explodes and then crushes him um, when so, you're having a really bad day yeah, you know I just fell from all this height and now I've got to have an entire radar array fall on me <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Bond and Italia fly off in a helicopter, and uh, uh, a very bizarre softcore Eric Serra song takes us out in the end credits, which uh, makes two movies in a row with makes, a weird end credits. Makes the Patti LaBelle <laughs> song and License to Kill seem absolutely uh, normal compared to this. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's Goldeneye. I don't know if we have anything else to add about the the film. Um, Jack, how do you feel about uh, how did you feel about it? Any uh, thoughts as we enter in this era? This is a lot of a lot of new things for us here. Have I lost you? Oh, I'm there. Yeah. I'm here. Can yeah. you hear me? Yeah, there we go. Oh yeah, no, no. <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe I accidentally muted myself. We're having gadget trouble here. Um, <laughs> no, no I, I would agree. I think I think it's this is certainly it feels like a shift in the films. I think that comes in with the fact that we've moved into the mid '90s. We've had six years of of pop cinema. Mm-hmm. play out um i would agree with sean i think this film has some pacing issues it's uh it's good where it's good it certainly you know it hits a lot of yeah. kind of good grace notes but it certainly uh it's a little overstuffed which i think is something that uh several bond films fall into and honestly several blockbusters fall into and it's uh, that's not getting any better as they start getting longer say, and longer 
Yeah. My 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 question for you guys, um, sure. Uh, as as uh, you guys move on, is yeah, are you looking forward to after watching Cold Night? Are you looking forward to uh, watching the next three, or do you kind of foresee bad things to come? Well, I, I think I can't remember if they get longer or what. I think Jake. I mean, Jake, you're familiar with. I've seen some of the other Bond movies, but it's been years. I don't re- like. As you say, they're set piece heavy. I pretty much just remember them as like an exploding boat. That's pretty much you know. That's so. It's Bond. world is not enough. Tomorrow never dies. And and die another day. Yeah. Um. Uh, so I think I think uh, even without my memories of the video game, I still think that uh, GoldenEye is far and away the best Pierce Brosnan Bond film. Um. Uh, but in my personal opinion, Jack, I'm not going to lie to you. I think we're the next three films are we're in for some rough times. Um, I, 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 <laughs> I was kind of anticipating. Getting, that. I have trouble getting through these. You get the snowmobile. There's which, Die Another Day, which was uh, has like a forty. Yeah, wait, wait, is that Die Another Day? Well, yeah, well right. actually, there's there's like the flying snowmobiles, which is the world is not enough, and then Die Another Day has like a forty five minute action sequence in an ice palace. Um, yeah, that was. Oh yeah, okay. Because I was working, that must have been like 2003. Because yeah. I was working, or 2002. Yeah, um, I was working in a cinema <laughs> at that point, and they brought in the snowmobile for oh yeah show, and people like the BMW snowmobile, and people thought that. I remember seeing like the Die Another Day poster for that, but uh, people kept asking if it was a raffle, and uh, so they couldn't touch it or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I forgot about the Ice Palace. I haven't seen. I've only seen those films like once um, when they came out, and that's it. But yeah, um, but uh, yeah. yeah, there are some people who th- like uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, Jonathan Price is the villain. It's about an evil media mogul who uh, wants to start World War Three so that his newspaper can cover it. Um, and then yeah, I mean, uh, frankly, that one at least is prescient in terms of like evil media mogul. But I, we'll see how like the Bond films are have that slightly frustrating talent of nearly having a theme and then kind of shying away at the last moment. Yeah, it just so it we'll, still we'll turns see into how a that works out. Action sequence at the end. Um, and then, yeah, so and the world my, my main recollection of the bond of the, of the next ones, honestly, is just a Madonna theme tune that everyone hates. That's a die another day. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Which honestly, I think I might not hate that much. So we'll see. <laughs> I don't think it's that bad either, uh, to be quite honest. Um, I mean, it's not great, but it's not the worst for me. Uh, but yeah, so um, look for things to come and uh, apologize to the listeners if we burn through those fairly quickly, because I'm really eager to get to the Craigs. <laughs> But, I mean, uh, and, and honestly, Sean, you know, you're welcome to watch them in your free time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. You're, yeah, no, absolutely. I will, just, I will say this, Sean, if you're interested, just look up at least the train fight in From Russia With Love on YouTube. And that's just a real okay. bruiser of an action sequence in 1963 that is, it still holds up today. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think we're done talking about GoldenEye's plot and such. Uh, shall we run some numbers, Jack? I'm sure you had a hell of a yeah, time absolutely. counting deaths in this film. Yeah, I okay, so I've come out with a I came out with a, a kill count of 38 people. Uh, 38 on-screen deaths, which shatters uh, Spy Who Loved Me's previous count was 22. He just blew straight through that, for you, honestly. So, uh, now, but, these are... Uh, 
only people Bond killed, right? Because all these the... Are, yes, uh, these are only people... Oh, God, no. If we were counting everyone else, like, Xenionatob <laughs> just mows down a bunch of people. And God, I mean, yeah. to be fair, so so the IMDb uh, trivia page cites a 47-person kill bond count for Bond. I can't mm-hmm. make that number work. I think they must be, you know, interpolating. Like, certainly there's a few other places. Like, for example, in the very opening sequence, um, the pre-credit sequence where he pushes the pilot out of the plane and a motorbike hits the pilot... Okay, I countered he killed the pilot, but if you actually watch it in slow motion, there appears to be no one on the bike. So, while it would make sense, a bike rider also died in that crash. He's not on the screen, so I didn't count him. So, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to work with, you know, who's actually there. So, um, yeah, you know, ho- hopefully it works out. But I, I got I got 38, which is still <laughs> a lot. Great. 38, and he blows up two separate bases. So, frankly, he could have killed three four hundred people yeah we who knows um but yeah certainly uh brosnan's off to a a a roaring start and that brings our total franchise uh, murder count to 230 um which frankly means that bond is uh well up on even the the most prolific of 70 serial killers at this point (laughs) so good for him uh sex this is uh we're, we're still kind of following on the dalton era of the uh the slightly less horny Bond. I only count two sex scenes in this. Um, he never really gets with on a top other than a little bit of a role play in a Russian yeah, sauna. Yeah. But I, I, I was wondering if you were going to count that or not. I would almost count it. Um, I, I don't know. The Catholics wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I'm just counting two, and that's with uh, Caroline, the MI6 psych evaluator. Yeah. Um, and that's played by Serena Gordon, uh, and only a ten-year age difference there. So honestly, yeah, yeah not too bad at all. Uh, and Natalia Simonova, who's played by Isabella Skorupko, is uh, she's twenty-five, and Brosnan's forty-two. So that's seventeen years of an age difference, which is a uh, yeah, pretty big. But honestly, Roger Moore was thirty years older <laughs> than Carol Bouquet in Three Years <laughs> well, Only. That's the, so. uh, well, that's the record. I don't think we'll see that. I don't. I don't think we're time. ever going to top that. If we ever do, someone should have a serious look at their lives <laughs> um so so anyway Brosnan he got two so he's we're more on the Dalton uh Sean I don't know if you're aware but uh, they kind of toned down Bond's sexiness in the 80s because of the AIDS scare um right so uh, yeah I was hearing you guys talk about that yeah so so uh, it looks like we're following on from that we're kind of keeping to two a film rather than three you know it's a very demure uh, very responsible <laughs> Um, so and that brings us to Bond having bedded 43 women in the entire franchise to date which is uh, probably well behind some of the most prolific serial killers to be honest but uh, <laughs> that's for another that's for another podcast so uh, Jake you, you got the box office on this which I understand is pretty impressive I do so as we all know uh, License to Kill killed the franchise it was the lowest uh, grossing Bond film um, ever uh, if you adjust for inflation uh, luckily, GoldenEye roared things back to life, uh, budgeted at $60 million, which is equivalent to about $100 million today. Uh, this film ended up grossing over that $106 million in $1995 uh, back then, which is equivalent to $178 million today. And it went on to make $352 million worldwide, which is today's equivalent of $594 million. This is one of the most successful Bond films, and Bond was back and better than ever, baby. Um, uh, however, uh, zero Oscar nominations, uh, for GoldenEye, uh, got a couple uh, of BAFTAs, I believe, I think got two for special effects. 
That's fair, yeah. Special effects, sure. A lot of great. Uh, I mean, I miss uh, practical um, miniature model work. Um, it's all just CGI now, but uh, yeah. Yeah, so. actually, it's worth it's worth mentioning Derek Meddings, I believe, is the name of the special effects uh, hmm. guy. Yeah, Derek Meddings, who died. Uh, he worked on this film, and then he he worked on several Bond films prior. He died, so there's actually a credit to him, an acknowledgement in the credits, which is a. A nice little touch. Yeah. Um, so speaking of special effects, ties in. Uh, we'll have a, obviously a new person uh, on the next one. For sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think uh, I think that's about it for my notes. Um, but uh, yeah, I say we uh, we wrap this up. Sean, thank you very much for uh, joining us once again. Um, if you know any other Bond films uh, present themselves as an opportunity you'd like to discuss, you know you're more than welcome to join us again. We'd love to have you back a third time. Uh, but for now, uh, yeah. people want to reach out to you. Where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at Sean Clemens on Letterboxd. All right. Excellent. And uh, Jack, what about you? Where can people find you? You can find me at Real Jack Eason on Twitter, where I'll be posting garbage. <laughs> All right on. Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd as at Jake Tropila. Uh, you can also follow our main channel, Optimism Vaccine, at Optimism Vaccine on Twitter. We'll reach out and respond to your tweets there. Uh, or if you listen to this and you're not a tweeter, go ahead and email us, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Uh, what, what is your favorite memory of GoldenEye? Did you play the game? Let us know. We want to hear from you. Um, I guess that about does it, Jack or Sean. Do you guys have anything else that you want to say in this uh, this dear time we have together? No. Nope. No? All right. I, Sean, I wish I could come up with something better than that, but no. Oh, that's totally <laughs> fine. All right. Well, stick around. We'll have, uh, gosh, by my count, what is it? Eight more films to go, and uh, we'll be done with this project. Uh, but, yeah. And then after this is Talking the Bond. After this is uh, Talking Bond, we'll, we're, we'll discuss each podcast episode that we've done, review <laughs> how, what we discussed and how we went about going it about discussing it yeah here we're gonna record audio commentaries for all of our, for podcasts. our podcasts we're gonna see <laughs> uh, that's too good all right yeah well uh, thank you very much everyone for listening uh be sure to also rate and review us on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts smash that five star button give us a, some nice words and uh yeah that's uh that does it for this episode stick around for your ears only we'll return with tomorrow never dies 